0: So we're, as you can see from behind me, we're going to be talking about working a hard field, right? What, what does it take to actually to dig in and, and, and to work a field that is difficult? And the reality, when you look into the Bible and when you look at the parable that Jesus gave about sowing seed, most of that seed lands in a hard place. Very, very rarely do we find seed that's just landing on that good ground. So most of the work that we're going to do is going to be in a hard field no matter where you end up, because that's the hearts of people. In fact, how often have any of you ever had somebody just come up to you and say, what must I do to be saved? Have any of you had that guy? Coincidentally, I did, I did two weeks ago. Um, uh, but that's the, that's, that's the exception, right? That's not the way that things usually go, right? And so we want to talk about that and see, see from just kind of continuing with what Joe did, we're going to be in in, in the Samuels, we're going to be looking at David, uh, you can jump into 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, to start from, but I would like to say this, on a number of occasions, just two or three times, I did have the opportunity, the privilege, really, to meet Brandon Smith, and uh, he and I connected immediately because of the work that we were doing, because of the lives we were living, because he and I were both uh, in a hard field and and ministering to, to similar people, not the same, but Uh, in a similar context and it was a joy truly to get to know him and this isn't planned and I don't know if we have a better place for it but since I got the mic do you want to take a minute and talk about the scholarship run down here uh, and get that mic from from Sam because I have the mic I'm in charge so we can put it right here oh there you go there's a mic right behind you Uh, Joe told me about this last night and so this is something you all need to hear about
1: yes that's really loud. Uh, I meant to mention this last night and fell to. Brandon, great brother and someone that, you know, I, I want to see his legacy continue and his tribe increase uh, and more people uh, through his influence end up on the mission field and particularly in the hard places. Uh, so we this year uh, established a scholarship fund uh, for um, long-range mission Internships. So if any of you are interested in, in serving somewhere on, in the world uh, and, and going for a, a, what we've said is a three-month to a two-year uh, internship, we want to help you. So right now we have about $40,000 uh, available uh, for those scholarships. If you're interested, uh, we can get my contact information out somehow. It's real easy. It's just Joe joemckagg at dicatorbaptist.org. Uh, shoot me an email I'll get you an application. Uh, but so we, we're, we're emphasizing the hard places. Uh, I, Brandon was not a prototypical missionary. Uh, he was a guy who you wouldn't expect maybe to be on the mission field. So we're giving some preference to those places in the world and those kinds of people. Uh, if you're if you're just an ordinary guy who wants to see God do something extraordinary in your life, we'd love to help you do that. So there's about $40,000 right now available to, to send folks to the mission field. And uh, contact me. Let me know. Thanks, James.
0: Yeah, so that's a great opportunity. Um, That kind of long-term missions is very much a needed part of the missionary process, of the growth process. Um, So that's an awesome thing. But being in a hard place and getting ready for a hard place, uh, you know, it, it gave me some, some, a lot of opportunities to grow and maybe a little bit of insight, and so I want to take some of God's Word and some of just my life and, and share those things with you and, and hopefully challenge you to join us in a hard field, because the reality is, as I said, the field that you are in is going to be hard. It does not matter where you've landed. Kansas City has hard hearts and hard fields too, Right? You don't have to go there to find the hard field, so it's everywhere. Now, God has a history of asking his people to do really hard things, impossible things even, right? I mean, from the very beginning, he started with Adam, and he, and he put him in the garden. And he said, I want you to have, uh, you know, to have, have, have dominion over and uh, all, everything, and Adam's like, wow, I mean, just in terms of sheer number, you look at all the animals that are out there, he's like, that's a pretty hard thing, right? And then you consider, you know, and then Adam's like, look at these rabbits. Like yesterday there were two, now there's already 14. Like how do I stay on top of this? And then he comes back and like now there's 68. And you go, what do I do with all these? Well, that's a hard thing. But God said, don't worry because I'm with you, right? He did the same thing with Noah, build an ark. That's a really hard thing. And bring all of the animals into the ark. Now that's an impossible thing. Just bring two. So when he went and came back, to, he went to like get some elephants, he came back, he's like, the rabbits, he's like, just two, no more than two. Just, just got. He went and got giraffes, he came back, he's like, two rabbits only. But that was an impossible thing, but God was with him, right? And he told Abraham, walk the land and it's yours. And he goes, man, that's a hard thing. He goes, and by the way, your kids are going to be like the sand of the seas and the stars of the sky, that's an impossible thing. But God was with him. He told Moses the same thing. Lead the people out of Egypt. That's a a very hard ask. And by the way, you're going to get to the Red Sea and you need to cross it. That's impossible. But God said, I'll go with you. Joshua, drive out all the inhabitants of the land really hard. Defeat Jericho by walking around it and being silent. Impossible. But I'm with you. Right, and you see this repeated over and over and over throughout the Bible as God is calling His people. He's, he, he, if we are to follow the example that God sets, then where should we be setting the bar? Because God sets it at really hard, or maybe more accurately, at impossible. And we're like, well, but it was 2020. And that's become the excuse for everything, right? 2020 was hard, and so automatically we've, we've lowered the bar maybe, and we've said we should just try to do this this year. And God said the bar's still here at really hard and impossible, but I'm with you. And somehow we think that magically tomorrow, all of a sudden, everything will be better. It won't. Okay? 2020 is finally ending. Nothing changes when you wake up tomorrow. It will be equally difficult. It will be equally hard. It will be equally challenging. All the problems you have today will be there when you wake up in the morning. And nothing will change. But God will be with you. That also will not change. Elijah got it. When he was given the chance to, to make a request of Elijah, he said, all right, what do you want? And Elijah said, well, I want a double portion. I want twice of what you got. And Elijah said in 2 Kings 2.10, thou hast asked a hard thing. You set the bar really high. That's a hard thing to ask for. But what was the key to that? What was the second half of that? Presence. The presence was important. If you're with me when I go, you're going to get it. And this is, the, this is the key, is the presence of God. Obviously, and, and doing hard things and plowing a hard field and, and working in a, in a hard place, we must, we must, we must have the presence of God with us. For without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Without me, Jesus says, you can do absolutely nothing. And David got it too. David understood it. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, and in verses, just the first couple verses, says this, And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, and the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said unto the king, Go and do all that is in thy heart, for the Lord is with thee. And it seems like almost out, kind out of nowhere that David gets this weird idea, and he's like, I'm going to build a house for God. And when you keep reading through that chapter, God kind of laughs. God's like, ah. You're going to build a house that will hold me? Like, how are you going to fit me into a house? That's a hard or impossible thing. And actually, God, you know, the story comes back and tells David, no, but your son will build this house. And so David just gets this kind of crazy idea. But in there also, I see see missions. I see David's heart that says, look, here's what needs to happen. We have got to establish a, a place of worship. We have got to establish the temple. We have got to establish the presence of God among these people. And that I see as the heart of David. And you can see that as the heart of missions too. Why do we go? Because the presence of God needs to be there just like it is here. Because they need the Lord. They need a place where they can come and hear the word of God preached. And so I think we can take a lot of missions applications out of here. But also a lot of hard world, hard work applications out of this this passage too. In terms of working a hard field, the most practical, the best advice that I ever got, the best advice that I've ever heard, uh, was, was said by, by one of our very own. I'm sure he's not the first to say it. I mean, many men have said it, because uh, I got it growing up. But a call to missions is a call to preparation, is the way Jeff Bartell has said it. That is one of the most practical pieces of advice that you can get in terms of missions or in terms of working a hard field, in terms of church planting, in terms of being who God wants you to be. When God has a call on your life, it immediately means that there is preparation involved. You're not ready for the hard work. You're not ready for the big fight yet. Now, Jeff has been saying that, and I, and, I, and I love it. I've heard it. But, you know, somehow I heard that growing up as well. I want to tell you about my really unique upbringing. I, I grew up in a Christian family. I got saved when I was uh, just about six years old. I was in kindergarten. Uh, I, and I grew up in what I believe to be the very best church on the entire planet. Uh, they preached and taught the Bible, and missions was, was, was central to that church. And uh, I was born in 1980, believe it or not. So growing up there in the 90s, it was a good place to be. And, and we had missions conferences every year and missionaries would come and, and, and just being around that from a very young age, I got a heart for missions and a heart for what God was doing. In fact, I, I thought, because this is what they taught at our church, they said things like men, ministry, missions. They said things like every member a, a minister. And, and I, just, I just believed that. And I thought that every person in the church was in training to be a minister at some level. That's what I thought. Every single person I thought, in those thousands even, I thought they're all here because they want to serve the Lord in a hard place. They want to give their life to, to the Lord. They want to be on the mission field. I knew that somewhere like chronologically older than me, I thought, well, you know what? They got saved when they were 25, but now they're saying, I'm going to be in the ministry. They got saved when they were 45, and they were thinking, I'm going to be on the mission field. I don't know, man. That's just what I believed. I know that's a unique position. I know not a lot of people grow up with that. You could say I was naive. But we just, I mean, I just believed it. That God's heart for every single one of his children is to be involved in his work. And so because I believed it, I just started acting on that. I put that idea into practice. You know, I just, uh, I, I just started where I was. I was. I became a high school uh, student and, and began to grow in my in my relationship with the Lord and started to understand a little bit about what God was doing and, and realized something really important and it was that God just wanted me to get to work because in, in a missions conference or in a missions context, oftentimes people are saying, you're just sitting there going, man, I want to go somewhere I want to go somewhere and start doing God's work, but what God is saying is, I want you to go here, I just want you to start going The problem is that you just haven't gotten gear. You thought you're going to wait and go somewhere. But God says, no, it begins here. It begins now. Just go. Where? In Midtown. Where you're at, just go. And so that's what I did. Like, all right, I started moving. Why? Because you can't steer a stationary ship. You're sitting there going, why isn't God guiding me? Why isn't God directing me? Because you're not moving. There's not a chance for that car to be redirected. You've anchored it, and you're sitting there waiting for him to come, and he says, just get moving, and I'll lead you. All right, so that's what I did. Um, I was challenged by our high school uh, pastor at the time to start a Bible study in my high school, and, and he just believed that if you opened the book with people, that it would change their lives, and, and so I did. Dan Renault was in that same ministry, and he was doing it in his high school, and Bo Green was in the same ministry, and he was doing it. And we just started Bible studies in our high schools, and just started preaching the word and, and evangelizing. And, and then I started studying Spanish because I, I realized that the whole world doesn't speak English. And I said, I don't know what God wants to do down the road, but I assume it will involve another language. And so I had to take a language as a high school student, so I started taking Spanish. But I took it seriously, and I thought, I should learn this. I should, I should really work at it. Not like a high school kid who's trying to get through the Spanish class, so you have this, 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 the guy who's actually from Mexico do all your homework for you. You know, uh, no. I was I was I was trying to meet Spanish speakers, and, and as I got into college, I'm trying to learn that culture, and I'm just trying to figure it out. And I just thought, God, I got to do something because you're calling me to a work, and if all I do is sit and wait, then I won't be ready for a hard field. Turn back to First Samuel chapter 17. I want to pull a couple thoughts out of the life of of David. Of course, this a famous passage, as David is going to go and fight Goliath. As I grew up in that, in that setting, I just kind of believed what God said, as crazy as that sounds, and tried to do it. And uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting in verse 32, you know, the, the, the armies have been put forth and David is gone and his brothers in the war. And And David said unto Saul, verse 32, let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go out and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and I smote him and delivered it out of his mouth and when and when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and I smote him, and I slew him. Thy servant slew also both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, go, and the Lord be with thee. That was kind of like, that, that, I think that was in the, like that, oh, bless your heart type of mindset like I don't think Saul really believed it he's like okay God be with you anyway and Saul armed David with his armor and he put on a helmet of brass upon his head and also he armed him with a coat of mail and David girded his sword upon his armor and he essayed to go for he had not proved it and David said unto Saul I cannot go with these for I have not proved them and David put them off of him and he took his staff in, in his hand and he chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and he put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had in, even a script and a sling and was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. All right, and so a couple of thoughts here. And these are things that, you know, as I was growing up and as I was a, a high school uh, kid and getting into college and just believing God and starting Bible study and trying to lead people to the Lord, there's some, just some ideas some principles that come out right here. And, and my question is, why five stones? It says that as David was getting prepped for this battle... Uh, Well, before we get there, I jumped ahead. Let's answer this question. Why fight a giant? Why go out and fight a giant? Because church planting is a giant. Because missions is a giant. Because the enemy is a giant. Because doing the work of the Lord is a hard thing. And the question is then, well, why would anybody want to go and fight a giant? And David gives two real simple answers to that. As he's walking through this thing, he says, first, foremost, and most importantly, he goes, because God is with me. Said, I can fight this giant because God is with me. He will go before me. That's key. Right? We cannot try to do the works of the Lord in the power of the flesh. We cannot try to go unless we know that He is going with us. So presence. Again, presence. And the second thing is this it talks about being proven. He says that in relation to the armor that he didn't know, but also we see here that David was also proven. How do you go out and fight a giant? And David said, well, because, listen, I've already fought battles before. They weren't giants. They were something a little bit easier. He said, I already fought a lion, and I already fought a bear. A little bit easier. That doesn't sound like much of an easier fight. If you had your choice between a giant or a bear, I don't know that there's a way to win. But here's the point. David has already been tested. David has already been tried. David has already been in in the work. David has already been caring for the sheep. He has been protecting the flock. And he was doing it back where nobody even paid any attention. His own father forgot about him when Samuel came around. But he was just there being faithful into that little bean field that he'd been given with the few sheep that he had. And when, when a bear came, he defended it. When a lion came, he defended it. What he's saying is this, look, I've been in some battles already. And sowing in a hard field will require that you get some practice in a softer field. Sowing in a hard field requires that you've been in some battles before. Sowing in a hard field is not something you want to just jump into. Oh, yeah, I saw somebody sling a stone before. I've seen that that sling and rock. I think I can do it. I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to give it a go. Against the giant, bad plan. But David said this, I've been there. Not as big, not exactly the same, but I've been in a fight. And I came through it because God was with me and because I've been sharpening my skills. And that's important. Because the thought of fighting a giant is scary. In fact, for a lot of us, the thought of fighting a bear or a lion is scary. I would anticipate that there were were probably maybe some wolves that came around, maybe something smaller that David also fought. It's just not as cool to brag about. Probably some dogs might have been a stray cat that he had to shoo away. <laughs> Maybe that's a good place to start. But do it. But start. Fight. Get in the battle and, and, and start using what God has given you. What has God given you? I got this sling and, and these rocks and this staff, and I'm going to use it to herd sheep, but I'm going to use it to protect them. And so you've got to practice. Pastors, we have got to be creating an opportunity. We've got to be creating an environment for our missionaries, for our church planters, for our young men to to be putting their their training to practice in a safe environment, in a more controlled environment, in an opportunity where where they can mess up and it's not as big a deal, where it's not going to destroy them. We have got to be providing that opportunity because when the giant comes, we need to know that our men have already been in the ring with a lion and with a bear and that they and that they can handle themselves against that giant when it comes. Maybe some of you are sitting out there going, man, I have had some Sundays where I showed up and and the senior pastor didn't preach and they let some other guy preach and you're going, it was rough. Praise the Lord. Because that man needed it. That man needs to be in the battle. You showed up in your Sunday fellowship and the man didn't preach. You go, you know the feeling. You're like, I ain't even taking notes today. You shut down. No, engage in the battle with him. Tune in. He's honing. He's sharpening his sword. He's learning to sling those stones so they hit the mark. So we need practice. Because the reality is the soldiers are built for fighting. The wrestlers are built for wrestling. Amen, Braden. Wrestlers are built for, built for wrestling. <laughs> Nobody ever liked wrestling practice. I was a wrestler too. I met another wrestler this morning. Nobody liked wrestling practice if you were doing it right because it was hard and it was you, it was you against uh, many other men and it was sweaty and it was long and it, and it broke you in every way possible. But you loved wrestling practice at, at, at the day of the tournament. You loved wrestling practice when your hand was being raised because you needed it to be ready for the battle. We need to be training, we need to be equipping need to get them off the bench. We got to get them in the game. No athlete wants to train just to sit on the bench their entire life. So why five small, why five stones? Here's another question. I have a couple thoughts to give you on that. Um, that's Budapest. Brandon told me, I'm, I'm way overestimating my audience, there's various backgrounds, they're all different cities and stuff, I was like, somebody's going to recognize their city, are cities that are important to us, that's Hungary, you know, we've got some people there. Anyway, see if you can find your city. <laughs> Five stones, why? Why? Because number one, not all giants fall with one stone. We know Goliath did and maybe growing up in Sunday school we've, we've adopted this mindset that all giants are going to fall with one stone and so we walk into a battle and we expect it to be easy and we know, I know what to do and we will boom, and we fling the stone and it hits the giant and he goes and he keeps coming and then you're like, what do I do now? That wasn't in the Sunday school story. What was there was that David picked up five stones. Maybe he knew that the giant wouldn't go down on one but that's Okay. David was ready for a long fight, if it had to be. He was ready to stand there until the job was done. He was ready to to fight hard and to fight for his entire life, literally. Until he died, he was going to sling stones. If we're going to work a hard field, if we're going to see churches multiplied, if we're going to see disciples multiplied, if we're going to see ministry multiplied, we have got to take that mindset that I have got to pick up as many stones as possible because it is going to be a long fight because I'm going to come up against giants that will not fall at that first stone. And if you were expecting that, then the retaliation from that giant is gonna get you. I think on one hand, David was ready for a long fight and we too must be ready for a long fight. I think also because David was ready for another fight. That giant had family. You read about that later on. That gets wrapped up further on down The line, but that giant had family. Right? So maybe there was another fight to follow. Maybe that giant does fall with one stone, but hey, a brother sees his brother go down. What do you expect a brother to do? What do you expect a son to do? Well, maybe you're gonna, Maybe a few more giants are going to come at you. One giant fell, praise the Lord, and so you thought that was the end of the fight because that's the way the Sunday school story went, but it doesn't always go that way. Maybe that giant does fall. Maybe the first one goes down, but then you didn't realize he's got brothers that are standing there behind him. You brought one stone because you knew he would fall, but now there's more. You've got to be ready for a hard fight, and you've got to be ready for a long fight. You need five stones because you can't make a deal with a snake. Because you can't trust the offers that's being put forth by the enemy. The enemy said, we'll send one champion, you send one champion, we'll fight. Well, who's, what's to say they're going to uphold their end of the deal? They see their giant go down, they're like, mm, well, we're still going to fight. Well, David was on that battlefield and he said, f- okay, whatever, I'll fight as many as come at me, well, until I run out of stones. You can't trust a serpent to not bite you in the back. So be ready for that in ministry and be ready for that in in the battle as you get out there. Five is also a a finite number, right? Like ultimately, if that army does come, they might get David before he gets help. And ultimately, that goes back to this. Um, He knew he needed the Lord. He took all the training that he had. He took all the practice that he had. He took everything that he had. But ultimately, five is a finite number. If it takes six stones to drop that to drop that giant, David's in trouble. And so what he's also saying is this he's like, God, with the little bit that I have, but with everything that I have, I give it to you and I trust it. You can take that, and that can be enough to get your work done, but you've got to intervene. I only have so much to offer. I am limited. In my capacity, in my ability, in my knowledge, in my ability to interact with people, and in every, in every facet of ministry, I am limited. I've got to have God to come in and move on my behalf. So he knew his training mattered. but He knows more importantly that God has to help. God has to be in, in it. So if you want to plow a hard field, if you want to, plant churches, multiply disciples, be a missionary, be in a hard place, then your endurance will be tested. Your preparation will be tested. Your discernment will be tested. And your faith will be tested. And these are battles that if we are wise as, as leaders that we are, we are trying to put our young men into now, we are giving them opportunity to have all of these things tested as they are growing up so that when we send them out, we can say, I've seen his faith. I've seen his preparation. I've seen his endurance, his willingness to stick to it when it's hard and when no one's around and nothing else is there. You get out on the field and it's you and the giant and that's it. I've seen your discernment. I know how you make biblical, wise decisions. You know, and some of us will fail in the fight because we didn't bring enough stones. Because our preparation does matter. Meaning, you need what Sam was talking about. You need LFBI. You need to, maybe you need D2. Maybe you need D1. You need a Bible study. You need to pick up as many stones as you possibly can. Get equipped. Get more weapons. Get more tools. But look, I don't need a bigger bag of rocks just so I can brag about how many rocks I've carried. I'm not saying go out there and, and pad your resume and, and find out, hey, look, man, I, I can carry 95 rocks into a battle. I'll be fine. I need more rocks because I am desperate for his presence in my life. Because I need to know him more I need his word more. I need his ways more. I need his thoughts more. I need every aspect of who he is in my life more than it is now, and that's nothing to brag about. That's to say, I know that I'm completely inept. God, help me. I need to be trained. I need to be equipped. God, give me everything that you have. Sam Miles, give me everything that you have so that I can take that and I can build from there. You wanna sow in a hard field? Go to your pastor and tell him that. Say, listen, Jay, give me everything that you have. And Jay will say, okay, let's do that. Give me it all. I need to get equipped. First Samuel 17, 55, when Saul saw David go forth against the Philistines, he said unto Abner, the, king of Ho- or the, the captain of hosts, Abner, who's, whose son is this youth? Who is that kid? And Abner said, as thy soul liveth, O king, I cannot tell. And David got exactly what he wanted. In chapter 17, here in verse 46, he tells Goliath, he says, my, my, my reason for standing here on this battlefield is one, and it is this, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Who is that guy doing these great things? No idea. Abner, who is that guy? Couldn't tell you. Who is that guy? Who's, who is that friend of Joe's over in a hard place? No idea. Hallelujah. Who gets glory then? Who is that guy planting churches over there in, in, in that difficult spot? I don't know. I know God's there. And that was David's desire, to make sure that God was known above all else. In 2 Corinthians twelve nine. He said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so that's where I began in my life and just thought with the idea that I have to get trained and I have to get equipped. And so, you know, I started Bible studies and I was reaching out and people are getting saved at, at least I'm at high school. And. And uh, you know, I was around a group of men that were doing the same thing, and we were all being encouraged to grow and uh, and to go and to, just to do that. And we were sharpening one another, and you know, we were we were weird, right, in high school. We got together, and we thought it'd be fun to like do like Bible roulette. Like, Here's a verse, preach it. Like, who does that? Let's do SOT. We're getting together to hang out. Let's do SOT. <laughs> those, those are some weird dudes. You guys were older than me. I'm going to put it on you. You guys led me into that. But... It, was awesome. it was awesome. I agree. Praise the Lord. And so, um, you know, God began to lead me, and He took me uh, shortly after that to El Salvador. In a lot of ways, not a hard field. You know, people are are coming to the Lord. A lot of you know the ministry of Leo Humphrey and just hundreds and thousands of people are coming to the Lord and the Mells went uh, down there and a lot of you know the Mells and their ministry and yeah, I mean, hundreds of people would come to the Lord and we could bring people down there and in a weekend you could lead a lot of people to the Lord. In a lot of ways that wasn't a hard field, but in a lot of ways for me that was the the training ground. It was an opportunity to put things to, to the test. I was there for about a year and a half this is really important. Uh, if you're training for ministry, especially if you're training for missions, getting that kind of medium, long exposure to a, a ministry that, is, that was safe in a lot of ways. It was established. Jim had already planted a church. I got to go in and be a part of it and help. Um, but there was a lot of things that God was teaching me also. And just before I moved to El Salvador, just a couple months before that, I met a girl named Rosie. She started coming to our church. I mean, she'd actually been there for two years. I just met her. Um, you know we started uh, we're, we're like hey this is I like you, you like me, this is a cool thing and then, and then Jim came along at the, the moving of the Lord and said hey why don't you come join us in El Salvador and I said yeah that's a good idea and I was like I like you, this has been great, I'm out of here peace and I moved to El Salvador And uh, God was doing a great thing and and we got to make disciples and I I got to learn about ministry. But for me in particular, this is what happened when I was in El Salvador. I had one goal um, that was just purely, you know, a personal goal. Some of you are going to really hate me when I say this. I apologize in advance. I'm not saying it to be funny. This is just true. My goal was to gain weight up to 150 pounds. Like that was my struggle. And I'm sorry if you're offended by that. I was working really hard to gain weight. And so, you know, we had ministry and I was a single guy and had a lot of time and I went to the gym every day. And so, you know, part of what I was doing while I was there was an opportunity to meet people and I had ministry in the gym. But part of it was selfish. I was like, I'm going to get big, 150 pounds big. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to be huge. And, And I was getting there. Like I was... I was huge. I got to 149 pounds. And you're like, wow, you were huge. I was, though, yeah? I was strong. Small, but strong. And uh, what also happened in that process is that thing just became an idol in my life. And I was like, I'm on the precipice of something great, one more pound. I'm just going to go home and eat. I'm going to get there, and all of a sudden, I got uh, sick. I got this weird flesh-eating thing that took over my back and uh, had boils and sores that uh, were just like, psh, bust open. and they were... Brandon will tell you about it. He saw it. I had to come back. For for Brandon's wedding, I came back during that time, and he can tell you about it, but what happened is, like, in the course of two weeks, like, my skin hurt, I couldn't put a shirt on, I couldn't, I didn't want to eat and anything, and over, in two weeks, I went from 149 to, like, 129 pounds, and everything I'd been doing and everything I'd been striving for uh, in my flesh was gone in a moment, and, uh, And then I came back here for Brandon's wedding and also to see a doctor and I'd gotten treatment there and nothing got better and I came here and got treatment and they put me on some really intense medications and I I was heading back to El Salvador so I had to take a six month supply of really intense medications back with me. So I'm probably the only person in the history of the world who traveled between America and El Salvador and I was taking a large load of drugs into that country. (laughs) No one's ever done that. they go the other way. But God healed that, and, and down the road, at the end of my time in El Salvador, uh, we had been praying about a school. One of the, the, the young men from the church went to this school, uh, a boys' school, and and at the end of the year, they would have a big uh, event for the juniors and the seniors of the high school, and Jim had been trying to get in there for a couple years and thought this would be an awesome opportunity to minister, and the door opened, and the student's name was Roger, and he just kind of worked something out, and the school was like, come in, we want." We want you to come and preach. And so the opportunity was was I'm gonna go and I'm gonna preach at their their senior, their graduation ceremony, and there's three hundred students that are gonna be there. Like two days before the school got robbed and they stole like the the microphones and speakers, all the amplification equipment, so the school calls and they're like, We can't do it, and Jim said, Yes we can, we'll give you our own equipment. Like it's gonna happen. And so, okay, so we get that fixed and then I wake up the morning of and and I go to this and, and I wake up and I don't feel good. And, like, my body is a, is a mess. And this is well past after that sickness time. Like, I'm healthy again. I'm, like, 132 pounds healthy. You know, I'm back at it. And I go to the, to the school, and I get there, and, and I'm in the bathroom uh, puking. My gut's out. I'm laying on the floor. Like, I can't move. I don't have any energy, and I don't know what's going on. And the knock on the door comes, and they say, James, it's your time. You're up. And I knew that God had been working hard to get this going, and I knew too that Satan had been working hard to make sure this thing didn't happen. And I knew that the the training was there, and the preparation was there, and everything was there, but except the Lord moved, there was no way that it was going to happen, and so I... I kind of wipe off and I'm, and, I'm, and I get up and and I said, God, you have to do this because one of two things is going to happen. I'm going to walk out there and puke on the stage, or you're going to take over and this is going to happen. And I walked out and in an instant, my body was fine. And for an hour, I got to address these students and deliver exactly the message that God would have me to deliver. And and as I walked off the stage, I could feel it coming back as I went down the stairs. And I got on the bus, and I'm puking on the way home, and I'm back in bed the rest of the day. All of that to say, what does it take to do a hard work and to work in a hard place? It will take your plans It will take your hopes. It will take your timeline. There was that girl, and I thought getting married was a good plan, and all of that got set aside. It will take you being willing to give up everything that you have dreamed of. It may take your body at some level. It will take you being willing to give up all of the strengths that you have in and of yourself. And that's what God was teaching me in that moment. And that, that first sickness was to get me ready for that day where God could show me, look, it doesn't matter what body you have. I can use you. I said, then let me just keep walking, and that'll be good enough. And you do the rest. I came back to Kansas City. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, David is, is anointed king in Hebron by the tribes of Israel, and, and he gets his own house. You know, that's kind of was what it was like. I came back, and I'm back into ministry at that same time. Sam's planting this church, and I, I joined with this work. And, and uh, you know, what did you do? Well, I just kept doing what I knew to do. As I, as I landed back in Kansas City and Sam was planting this church, there comes times in your life where, where maybe you are looking for the direction. Maybe you've been moving. You say, God, what do I do next? I don't know. Frozen got it right. Just do the next right thing or just keep doing what you already know to do. Just move forward in the truth that you have and let God redirect you as needed. And until he redirects you, just keep working with that. So we came back and we, we just started doing Bible studies and, and, and getting plugged in and, and just working within the boundaries that, you know that, that Sam had set. He set up some ministry guidelines and principles and said, look, as, as long as it falls within this boundary, just do it. Go for it. And that was freeing, and that was, that was awesome. That was a good opportunity. And so, uh, you know, there were some really good times coming out. Again, Dan and I, every, you know, once a month, we were in the back, uh, up in the balcony, just through the whole service. At that, t- at that time, in Midtown's history, there was somebody praying through every service. And we, we had a, a rotation in that. And that was a little bit of a sacrifice. You're like, man, I really want to hear Sam preach. But man, those were some sweet times. Just being up in the in the upper room praying and saying, well, whatever it takes to lift up what God is doing down here is what we're gonna do today. This was a wild place as it was getting planted. Sam will tell you some stories uh, about the craziness that went on here. It was a battle. It was it was a hard field coming into this building in this location and And one thing that we decided, me and just a couple friends, we, we decided, you know what? On Saturday nights, why don't we just come up here after dark and just walk around the building and pray? And we learned right away that that was that was a, a really wild thing to do, because you would find, uh, as Sam would say, every type of shun, word happening on the steps of that building. We would come up here to pray for what would happen the next day, and we thought, let's just cover this building in prayer. Who told you to do that? Nobody did, but we just believed that this is a house of prayer, and so we did it, and we just had this little prayer ministry in the middle of the night, and we would clean drugs and needles up off the porch, and we would clean feces up off of every other place and just like pick stuff up and pray. Why? Because because we just wanted to see a, a work done in a hard place the next morning. And so it took some preparation. Also during that time, I was, I'm a nurse also, and I was working in the emergency room. And if you work in an emergency room, the worst patient that you have is the patient who partied too hard and is in there just because they're, they're drunk or, or strung out on some kind of drug. They don't need any medical treatment. You just babysit them until they sober up. Emergency people despise them. And it's easy to kind of slip into that mindset when you're in that crowd. But God was working in my heart, and He told me this. He said, "You should, you should reach out to those people." And I'm like, "Those people?" And He said, "Yeah." And so for a season there, I had this weird ministry going, where if I worked on a Saturday night, uh, you know, I'd wake as as morning was coming. We're waking all the drunks, and we're trying to get them ready to go. And if they were young, if they were young men, um, I would say, "Hey, can I give you a ride somewhere?" And my coworkers looked at me and they're like, What are you doing? And I said, I'm gonna take this guy to breakfast. And they're like, He's covered in urine. I said, I know. But I'm gonna take him to breakfast and I'm gonna share the gospel with him, and I'm gonna see if he wants to come to church with me. And it didn't make any sense. If you were my friend at that time and you ever rode in the passenger seat of my car, I'm sorry. because I was picking up guys who were covered in everything and trying to bring them to church. That's why I always put you in the back. I liked you best. Um, So people would look at you and go, what on earth are you doing with those people, with the unlovables, with the untouchables? And here's the reality. If we were to see your work take root in a hard place, it will require your reputation, People around you are going to start going, what is this guy thinking? And everyone that I worked with thought I was out of my mind. And everyone who who knew Midtown thought Sam was out of his mind. You cannot do that work, and you cannot do it there. And why would those people? And if you're going to see a work take root in a hard place, it will require you to love a hard people. It will require you to love a hard, hard people. Ministry will not multiply. Except we love a hard people. We like to think that we weren't the hard people at one time because we're polished now, but I too was a hard people. We, um, man. Loving a hard people is a hard thing, but it's a necessary thing. It is absolutely what was modeled for us by our Savior, and it is absolutely what it will take to see ministry multiplied in hard fields and in hard places. Fall in love with them. Invest in them. Pour into them. Share life. It was, you know, it was, it was actually kind of awkward. Sometimes on Sundays I would come in here and, and some of those you know, same people that would wander into the emergency room that's just right over there at St. Luke's would also wander into this church and uh, you would see them and nobody wanted to talk to them. I mean, sometimes they're a mess, like their pants are falling down and all their stuff is exposed every which way and like all kinds of craziness would go on. But they would walk in and they'd see me and they'd go, oh, hey, cousin, family, what are you doing? And then everyone in church at Midtown's like, James, these are your friends? These are your family? And I'm like, pull your pants up, bro. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> we got to cover you up. Um, yeah. Those were my friends, I guess, because I took care of them in the ER and then because they showed up here and we just got to love them. Psalm 60, and verse 4, thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee, that it may be a, a, a displayed because of truth. God is putting a banner on his people. Song of Solomon 2, 4, he brought me to the banqueting table and his banner over me was love. That sash, that prom queen type of thing they wear, the hallway monitor thing you wear, yours as a Christian should be love. That's the banner that should be displayed to the world. That's the banner that will change hard hearts and plant seeds in hard places. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1 is where where we were. David wants to build a house to the Lord. And it says something interesting. It says that he was at peace he had rest from all of his enemies roundabout and both god and satan want to see how you will respond to a time of peace both of them are equally interested Because sometimes the greatest battle strategy that Satan has is to not engage you in battle. Because here's what happens. We'll walk away from from mission focus and we'll get charged up and we'll get excited. We'll walk away from from our fall retreat and we're charged up and we're ready to go out and face that lion and and we go racing out and and we're equipped and we're ready. And then you can't find the lion anywhere. All of a sudden Satan has become a serpent and he goes, watch this. I have a different plan. I'm just going to give you peace for a while. I'm just going to make it easy. And that is one of the, potentially the most difficult times for, for, for believers, is the time of peace, because you want to fight. In fact, because you should fight. If you're going to do a work in a hard place, you should be looking to pick a fight. The disciples, look at Acts. They're picking fights everywhere they go. They go, we, get in, we want to be involved. We want to engage. And it was a hard thing to do, but hey, What if Satan just goes, look, you can have your quiet and peaceable life so long as you don't bother me either. And that's usually the deal. Because Satan knows that for many peace leads to comfort and comfort leads to contentment. And contentment will render you ineffective completely for the mission. It was peaceful, so we sat down and we rested, and the rest turned into a nap. And then we were like, Well, this is just comfortable, bring me a pillow. And we stayed. So David has peace. And in that moment of peace, he gets this vision. He says, We need to plant. From here, we need to grow. From here, we need to start a fight in verse chapter 8 and verse 1 second Samuel and after this it came to pass David smote the Philistines wait a minute why he's at rest he has no enemies attacking him what's the very next thing he does he goes and picks a fight The enemy wanted nothing to do with him, but why? Because the enemy said, okay, fine, you be content with the bit of ground that you have. You stay there. So long as you're not expanding your kingdom, I'll let you be content in that space that you have. I won't fight you for now. You stay there too. We'll both stay in our lane. And David said, no. And after this it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them, and David took... Uh, out of the hand of the Philistines and he smote Moab and he measured them with a line casting them down to the ground even with two lines measured he to put to death and with one full line to keep alive and so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts and David chapter 8 and verse 3 smote also Hadad Ezer the son of Rahab king of Zobah as he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates why did David go out and pick a fight because God had already promised more because the land that he had was not everything that God had already promised. There was a border to be recovered. And if we're going to see a work done in a hard place, and God, will it will require us to say that the borders that we have are not enough. We need to go and take territory from the enemy. Why? Because God has already promised that land anyway. David is king, but his kingdom is not expanded fully to what God has given him. And Satan said, be content with what you have. And David said, I need to recover some of this ground that you've claimed. There's a lot of ground to recover in Kansas City. There's a lot of ground to recover in Cartersville. There's a lot of ground to recover in Malawi. There's a lot of ground to recover around this world. What we cannot do is be content with where we're at. So while at peace, David says, I gotta fight. Let's go. 2012, we picked a fight. By then, the wildness of this place had calmed down a bit. And I think Satan was saying, cool, be, just be at peace. And Sam said, we'll baptize 200 this year in the name of the Lord, God willing. That's a fight. We baptized like 212 or something. Because there was more ground to be recovered so we went. After that, God called our family to, to a, a hard place. All of that that he did up to that point, he was preparing us for, for a new hard place. In February of 2015, we moved to Pakistan. And of course, as everyone knows, that's a, that's a, a hard place. And in preparation for that, as I was working through that, um, going to El Salvador for me was easy. I was young. I was single. I was crazy. God wanted to do something. But come Pakistan. You know, I told you I had to give up a lot of plans and timelines and such, but God gave a lot back. He gave me that girl back. And we had gotten married, and, and we had children. And as I'm praying about moving to Pakistan, to Pakistan with a wife and with kids... This was a hard thing to consider. It was easy to go when it was me, but now I'm responsible for a lot more. And uh, my son, we had two sons. My son is about, I don't know, two years old, and he got sick, and he had a fever, and I'm a nurse, and and don't take what I'm saying as like your medical advice. This is just me. But I was like, it's probably viral. We'll just ride it out for a few days. We didn't go to a doctor or nothing. I was just like, you can't do anything anyway. He'll fight it. And, And so... My philosophy was if he has a fever you know, after five days, then we'll get it checked out. But usually it'll, it'll run his course. You should, probably shouldn't do that. You should maybe, anyway. So my son had gotten sick and he had a fever and you know, it's, the, it's the fifth day and you know, we're kind of getting distraught by this and, and I'm starting to think maybe I made the wrong choice. Maybe he does need to go to the doctor. And, and here I am in, in, in the middle of the night, one night he's just, uh, he's crying like a pathetic cry. Not like the angry kid in the middle of the night cry. It's like the, uh, and he's like, uh, his fever is like 113 or 190 or something. It was too high. And I'm just holding him, and and he's just like, uh, and in the dark and in the still quietness of his room with this sick kid, I'm going, God, heal this baby. Heal my son. Get rid of this fever. And God said, do you trust me? And I said, I do. I trust you completely. That's why I'm praying to you. That's why I'm asking you. And it was quiet for a while. I'm there with him, and he's still pathetic. And I prayed again, Oh I'm like, God, God, heal this child. Take away his hurt, because it hurts as a father when your, when your kid hurts, and And fix him. And God just said, do you trust me? I said, of course I do. I have great hospitals close by. I haven't gone there. I have great education myself. I'm not relying on it. I'm praying. I'm asking you. I'm asking you. I trust you. With all the resources that I have at my disposal right here in Kansas City, all that I can do, God, is to rely on you. And I'm telling you, I trust you. You can heal this boy. It was quiet for a while. And I kept praying the same thing. And a third time, in the stillness, God came back and said, do you trust me? And then I got it. He wasn't asking me, do I trust you to to heal him right now? He was like, do you actually trust me with your son completely? Will you put him in my hands? And I I was like, I get it. Cause here I am in Kansas City and all I know how to do is to trust you but then I'm saying I'm gonna go to Pakistan but I don't know if I can trust you with my kid what a hypocrite and God said just put them in my hands would you trust me with that and I said yeah God you can take my children and take my wife You've, you've already gotten, you know, my body and all these other things that I've been willing to give you. But look, you can take them too, whatever that means. Have them so long as you are glorified. And, uh, and then I gave it to him. And it will absolutely, if you are going to see a work done in a hard place, it, it, it will require your, your, your future, your inheritance, maybe your hopes, right? I had to put everything that I had into his hands and say that you are no different in Pakistan than you are here, God. If I know that all I can do here is trust you, then all I can do in a hard place is trust you. Take my future Take everything. And in the morning, he was healed. And I said, okay. If we're going to see ministry multiplied in hard places, we'll have to put all of it into his hands. Put all of it on the altar and trust that many times he'll give it back, but sometimes he won't. And it's okay either way. And what does it take also to plow a hard field? As you know, we were then thrown out. Um, it will require you not having a home. To be a stranger, to be a pilgrim, to be exactly what you've already been called to be. Because this world isn't our home anyway. But that's the mind that we've got to have. We're out of time. we gotta, we got to pray, and then um, you got to get, get rid of your coffee and take a break and then come back in here. All he's asking for is everything. So I guess that's the summary. Just put it there. Heavenly Father, you're worthy of it all. God, you are worthy of it all. We desperately want to plow a hard field. I pray that we would be an equipped people. I pray that we would be a practiced and prepared people. God, I pray that we would lay down everything that's in our heart, all our hopes, all our wants, all our dreams, and let you have all of it. Take our future and give back to us what you, what you know to be best for us so that you can receive the most glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.